Well, good morning. Thank you so much for um, the opportunity to share with you this morning. My name is Chris Place. I am Associate Program Director at the In His Image Family Medicine Program in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I am the Director of International Network Programs for that, uh, for that organization, In His Image International. We have uh, about eight residency programs overseas that are functioning, uh, training Christian family medicine residents in different countries. You'll hear more about that later. We are training nationals. We're working uh, in these countries. And so um, I'm, just, I'm just honored that you're here this morning. It's, it is an honor to be here. It's an honor for you to come and listen. Um, and I would love to have time sort of at the end to kind of meet some of you and hear your comments, hear your questions. There is clearly expertise, I'm sure, in this room that uh, have things that, that would be very useful and very, uh, very helpful in, in what we're talking about this morning. So um, I'm, just, I'm just happy to be here and honored to be here, so thank you for, for, for being here. I want you to, to imagine, kind of to start off with, that uh, you are an astronaut. <clears throat> You have um, been trained, you have planned for your entire life, your educational life, your young life to be an astronaut. You're going to go boldly where no man has gone before and do great things. And you train and you struggle and you work through that process and you're chosen. You're chosen and set apart and recognized as that person and uh, and as one of the, uh, yeah, you can do that. Oh, you can't see my Mars scape there. Yeah, let's turn that off. <laughs> I told you to get up here on the floor. You could. Uh, so you're you're trained. You're set apart. You're you're uh, you're ready to go. You're equipped, and uh, and you're chosen to go for the first. Manned mission to Mars. That's the big thing now, right? We're going we're gonna to make it to Mars. Elon Musk has his way. We're going to have a colony there. Things are going to be great. We're all going to be driving Teslas around on Mars. And, uh, and you've been chosen to, to do that. And, and so you, you begin getting ready for that process, and, you, and you, you find your team, and you've got a group that's going with you, and you all have different roles, and you all have different responsibilities. You get into your Mars uh, rover your Mars rocket and you make your way to Mars, however that works, you're going to get there and you, you find yourself there and you begin to set up camp, you, you get there, you begin to do the work that's required, collecting Mars rocks and drilling and the other things that you do and you're there and you all have your responsibilities and you're the guy that's the kind of communications person, so your responsibility is to keep con- contact with home base, with planet Earth, and also to sort of scan the horizon for any other information that be, may be coming in. And so you're there and you're working and you're isolated, you're alone, you feel like we're the only folks out here, this is Mars after all, it's a foreign place, and you're sitting in front of your radio one day and you're sort of doing the usual communications thing and, and suddenly you hear a crackling sound coming over the radio and you're afraid it may be a Martian coming to get you. But it's a voice, and it's someone that says, Hello, hello, is anybody out there? We're here, is anybody out there? And suddenly, your entire world turns upside down. As, as you realize you're, the not, you're not the first group that's gone 
to Mars and has tried to set up camp and has tried to do what you're doing. And so I want you to imagine the feeling of that and how that would occur to you, how that would feel if you knew there was someone else out there that you could connect to that would be like-minded, that would be there doing what you're doing. And so that really, that analogy, that sort of idea is really what I want us to think about when we think about educational programs, educational projects in medical care, in medicine, and how we can think about connecting. And so here are sort of what I'd like to cover this morning. I want to to understand more fully the potential, looking for my pen here. So um, I want to understand more fully the potential impact, the importance of networking among international training programs. So again, my my area is in medical education. I teach residents. Um, In China, I taught medical students as well. So I'm going to be talking about how networking or connecting those programs or those projects out in the field, on Mars, if you will, can impact what we're doing. I want to identify some key differences between networking and other forms of affiliation, certainly not taking away anything from that home-based connection, from that affiliation with planet Earth, if you will, but I want to recognize there's a, there's a difference. There are many key differences between that. And then I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the tools, some of the, some of the things that we have used in collaboration, some of the things that we've done well, some of the things that we've not done so well, uh, mistakes that perhaps we've made. And then I want to just share our, my personal story, our personal uh, network of programs and how that functions in hopes that it will apply perhaps in something that you're doing. So that's really what I, what I want to do. That's, that's my goal. Um, a, a bit of a disclaimer, I am a family medicine physician. Family medicine is certainly God's, uh, God's practice. It's God's uh, reason for doctors to be. But if you are not a family medicine doctor, this applies to you as well. So if you're in surgery or you're in anesthesia or you're in, in some other program and you're interested in education, these things are applicable. Although you're going to hear a lot of family medicine because that's, that's who I am. So what do I mean by network? Very just basic stuff. We're talking about interconnectedness, an interconnected system of things or people, uh, a communication system consisting of a group of broadcasting stations. So broadcasting is important because if we're out there and we're doing our work and we're collecting our Mars rocks and, and we're not... We're not broadcasting and sharing what we're doing with the other pieces of that network, then we're not really functioning as a network. We're functioning as something, but we're not functioning as a network. So broadcasting stations or broadcasting locations, and then, of course, to communicate with and within a group. So these are all pretty pretty simple concepts. Another um, aspect of this or another, another instance of this I think we've seen in the past couple of decades is the so-called community of practice. How many of you are familiar with, with this term, communities of practice? Just me. So community of practice um, is not a new concept by any, by any stretch, and it really is built around the concept of networking. And so what a community of practice is, is it has a, a common domain say, uh, family medicine, kind of that knowledge base. It has a common practice, and then it has a community of some kind. And those three pieces sort of come together 
and create a community of practice. You can think of those outside of medicine, IT, business. There are lots of ways this applies. I kind of liked this, uh, this little uh, graphic at the bottom here. So the little, the little people, the little members of each, of each practice, each place, come together with a common theme or purpose, let's say family medicine or uh, medical education as a, as a missions methodology, and they build trust among members in order to share tacit knowledge, tacit knowledge being the knowledge that's gained through experience and sort of on the job, on the fly, that can't be learned from a book. Tacit knowledge develops shared practice, which creates collective intelligence. This is really starting to sound like Star Trek now, the sort of the Borg. But uh, collective intelligence, which becomes implicitly held knowledge. And again, that is sort of the concept of connecting these places or these activities into a community of practice. Uh, just some other kind of, if you're visual like, like I am, we, we see this in education, we see this in missions, the concept of sort of a centralized network where there's kind of a hub, home base, and all of these satellite uh, locations outside, then we have kind of a decentralized, this would be sort of the concept of regional leaders or someone who's in Africa and kind of has an office there and then some satellites coming off of that. But what we're really trying to get at is sort of this distributed Network. So, so network position, places in this network that are connected to each and every other place in the network. So that's sort of the concept that I'm trying to get at. Okay. So why why do I share this stuff? Uh, some of our history at In His Image. We began having missionaries who were doing training, who were doing family medicine education, and they were programs and projects and plans, they were not in competition. It wasn't like, you know, we were, we were recruiting the same group of people. We were often in different parts of the country or even different countries. And we wanted to understand and respect the differences in each of our settings, but we were reinventing the wheel over and over and over. So in northeast China, we were, we were writing curriculum for Chinese residents. And then in southwest China, we were writing the same curriculum. And we were doing all of that again. We were doing the same interview process and recruiting. And, I mean, the documents that we had to create for that process were being reinvented every time. So we wanted to stop reinventing the wheel. We wanted to stop uh, crying like the little guy with the square wheel there. Uh, we also wanted to introduce some standardization. So we, we did want to recognize that in my field, in family medicine, Although it's very different across the world, there are some standards, there are some common ground that we can find, and we can introduce some appropriate standardization into that. We can even introduce a bit of oversight, a bit of accountability, a bit of asking questions. Well, how are, we, how are you going to do obstetrics in this setting or versus this setting? And so we wanted to do some of that. And we, we did not want to take over the role of a U.S. affiliation. We didn't want... If it was a medical school or someone that was in the U.S. that was sort of the home base for this group, we didn't want to do that job. We wanted to be different and realize that we had a different purpose. So we began to sit and think about how we might put this together for In His Image, again, for these eight programs that, uh, that we're trying to connect. Out of that came these four goals, uh, these four aspects of what we call now the Hope Family Medicine Network. It is 
It is not an original name. Hope is, is available for all Christians, for all people who believe in the Lord. But Hope was a good name. It was the name of the clinic, a couple of clinics that were working there. And so we called ours the Hope Family Medicine Network. And we, we decided that these four areas, so to establish, to help, to advocate, to facilitate, would be uh, important, broad goals that we would be involved in. And I'm going to kind of go through uh, each of those for you. So, so first of all, network, networking as we have done is the entity, is the group that, that begins to look at establishing new work. So you'll see in a minute we had eight programs, and all of these guys were very busy. They were very overwhelmed. They were trying just to do what they were doing, kind of keeping their head above water. And so we saw that actually one of the strengths of collaborating and creating this community of practice is we can sort of do some of the work of research and development and finding where maybe the Lord is leading into a new place. So it it doesn't fall so heavily on just the single place that maybe has a vision for a new area. And we'll kind of get into some of that uh, more later. So that was sort of one of our first goals was that the network would function to help establish new programs, so new places that perhaps we discern that the Lord wanted us to be uh, about. Secondly, we, we wanted to be a help. We wanted that structure to help the members, the individual programs, be better doctors. That was, that was sort of obviously the first step. We really wanted to see that one of the outcomes of being part of this network, part of this group, is that your practice of medicine in that place is better than it would have been without collaborating, without connecting. It's sort of that, that collective knowledge we talked about previously. So we wanted to help with the provision of excellent primary care, and we also wanted to make these programs the very best quality medical education that, that was available. We wanted to encourage these members to be doing the very best, the most um, excellent education in that site. And so that was part of the function of our network, was to help members improve their primary health care and the quality of their, medic- of their medical education. So establishing new programs, thinking about research and development, where is the Lord leading as a group, and helping members improve these things. Number three, the individual um, programs that we're involved with, they need a lot of advocacy. Often they're, they, they really are sort of out on Mars. They really feel that isolated. They really feel alone. They really feel like there's no one advocating, ad, telling anyone else about what they're doing. And so one of the big functions of that network was to advocate. And in sort of these ways, I'm going to kind of start here at the bottom. <clears throat> Often the work of that program in the country of service was really a, a big part of what the advocacy work was done. And through people like Dr. Jenkins, Dr. Warren Heffern, others who would go and, and travel to that site, or perhaps from one site to another site, it would really build the reputation and the strength of that, of that individual program. They could be an advocate and say, you know, I know a really good doctor here in town. You've invited me as an expert to come in and lecture, to come in and do something. There's really a neat person here alongside, and we, and, and we could be advocates for those member programs in their country of service. Um, often we're called on to be 
advocates for medical education as a methodology for medical missions. So we, we understand that medical missions is a gigantic thing, right? I mean, obviously we're here at this gigantic place and these, all of these people. Medical missions is a huge thing. And one aspect of it that has been so important to us, and I want to encourage you to think through, and just being here you are, uh, medical education is a life-changing way. It is an absolutely incredible way of living out the gospel in, in medical missions. You know, we spend three to five, sometimes longer years, one-on-one with small groups of residents, small groups of medical students, living life with them, doing missions together, doing disaster relief together. And so the, the, the medical education model of medical missions Certainly not taking away from the clinical or the healthcare aspects of what we're doing and the, and the mercy ministry of that, but the educational process, the mentoring process. And so we found that the network functioned in a lot of ways as an advocate for that methodology. So we would often be talking to groups of other mission organizations, mission agencies that maybe weren't thinking in those terms and saying, hey, these programs are doing incredible work. They're doing incredible discipleship. We're seeing churches planted. We're seeing amazing things change in this location because of this medical education work. And so being an advocate for that is is a very critical part of what we're doing as a network. Uh, Often the recognition and development of primary care in these places. Everywhere we have, which you'll see in a minute kind of where these sites are, family medicine is is an anomaly. It is an unusual, uh, unknown entity, not... Historically, but I think practically, a lot of these places are very uh, tertiary care, very uh, split between the sort of care for the haves and care for the have-nots, and we, we understand those dynamics. Family medicine is a, new, is a new thing for a lot of these places, and so often we're doing the hard work of advocating for primary care in family medicine, and so we have to be aware of you know, sort of that movement and how important it is. So that is important. So establishing new programs, helping with these programs, do better medical care, do better medical education, and then advocacy, a big, big part of what we do. And then finally, uh, collaboration. So we want to facilitate collaboration among members. So you'll hear that we we have four residencies in China, and we have four that are sort of outside China. And uh, so what we want to do is we want to allow, we want to encourage collaboration between programs across borders, within borders, etc. And so that was a big thing. And we'll kind of talk about how we flesh that out. So what am, I, what am I talking about in terms of our example? So what we created um, several years ago now, is, is what we call the Hope Family Medicine Network. And it was, it is, a network of faith-based international family medicine training programs with similar goals and organizational cultures. This is the version that I presented at the Academy, obviously. We removed all the <laughs> buzzwords. So uh, with similar goals and organizational cultures. So these are faith-based. These are Christian organizations. These are Christian residency programs. And we divided those into sort of two groups. And this is kind of a... Just as we were thinking about it, uh, we have these these sort of eight main, uh, what we call core HOPE programs. And then we had a lot of other projects that 
that honestly are often the research and development sort of thing. They're, they're projects that we're aware of. They're people and, and places that are aware of. And maybe it's not quite the time for them to feel uh, like they want to get connected more meaningfully into that. And so we, we certainly visit with them. We certainly include them in the, in the process. But we sort of refer to them more as cloud or, or affiliated sites um, that are outside of the, of the core um, main projects. So these are kind of the statements that we came up with as we, as we began to establish this. Again, just thinking about your activity wherever the Lord calls you to be, um, how this might apply if you've got places that you're wanting to do this with. So family medicine educators networking to improve health and postgraduate training in international training programs. So that's our vision statement. And then by purposefully connecting. So Again, the, the, the concept of the broadcasting station, the person, the program that is, that is saying, hey, I'm out here and here's what I've got. Here are the resources that I have that I can share with somebody else. I'm broadcasting that information rather than just being a passive recipient of, of the benefits of that. So by purposefully connecting, the network will assist members as they train healthcare professionals, raise the quality of healthcare in their countries of service. Uh, so those are, those are our important statements. And we have seen this model, this particular model, for us at In His Image be uh, really that, that cord of three strands that's not easily broken, that's spoken of in Scripture. So this, this concept of our, our educational program, so the family medicine, in our case, residency program, functioning in country, and then often that program has either a director or faculty or individuals that are in his image Again, in our context, in his image, uh, sent missionaries. So we have in his image that functions as a sending agency. So one of our sent missionaries is, is there in the program. And then this kind of third piece of that, which has been kind of what I shared earlier, Chris, Warren, John Crouch, others inside and outside of in his image that have gone in and out, in and out, in and out, often multiple times each year. Um, to in, encourage both the individual and the program piece of things. And that, when those three things are functioning, that, that strength has just really been incredible to see. So that's sort of uh, how we have set it up. In all of our sites, we don't have all three of these acting, so we have some places that are not, that are not doing that, but that has been probably our strongest uh, structure. So here's where, where our... Uh, programs are. You can see I uh, was here in Macau, which is way down here, and um, I was there for about 10 years. We started, we started with a very small program, just a kind of an apprenticeship style of program with one or two residents that were just shadowing and following us, following the docs, the expat docs. We began kind of incorporating more of an educational piece we began to kind of put what we called scaffolding up, so some rotational kind of ideas, and maybe you can go from this rotation to the other, your own clinic. They began to see their own patients and be precepted. And then once we kind of got, you know, a critical mass, we began to actually formalize it. We created a three-year curriculum, now a four-year curriculum. We began to look at hospital rotations. You know, it, it grew from sort of an, in an organic way from just one or two students that were following us to a really a, a full residency program. And so that, that's what happened in Macau. Similar thing happened up here in the northeast in Xinjiang. Very, very uh, active 
ministry, doing incredible work, but in the center of that has been the residency training program that allows them to do more and also creates the, the environment for life-on-life life, uh, mentoring and ministry. Um, a couple of other China programs way down south in Haikou, and then Wuhan kind of in the center of the country. So those are our four China programs. We have programs then in, in Horn of Africa and then in Almaty, Kazakhstan. See if I know my geography here. Kabul, Afghanistan, and, uh, and finally Aswan, Egypt. And so <clears throat> um, you'll see that you know, we just kind of have a, a, a motley crew, really, of, 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 of groups that are in different places. Uh, even in China, the, the requirements uh, for training are different. The population, of course, of patients that are caring for are different. So there's some differences and difficulties even within the same country, certainly across to Kazakhstan or Egypt. You know, there are a lot of things that we, that we need to learn and, and things that are different. But these are sort of our eight uh, family medicine training programs. And they range, again, from, from really pretty small, one or two, three maybe residents that are, that are functioning almost at an apprentice level, all the way up to, you know, a fully functioning 16, 18 residents, uh, what you would sort of recognize almost as a Western-style medical education program. So um, in all of these, um, because they are part of that network, we have sort of these benefits. And this is just, again, what we've kind of done. Um, we, have a, we have a lecture database that's available. We share that information and that, obviously. We have shared faculty, so often... A faculty member from one program will go and visit and stay, you know, for a month or two in another of our of our programs. It's much easier for me and Macau to travel and do that in Shenyang than to come from Tulsa or Louisville and, and make that a trip. And so you can kind of see how a network becomes very powerful in that case. So shared faculty, resident exchange. So... In, in northeast China, that program is very, very active in, in pediatrics. So we have a lot of orphanage ministry there, a lot of kids. And we don't have very many children in Macau because there's a, they all, we just have casinos and they don't let the kids go into the casinos. So we don't have a lot of pediatric patients. And so often we would send our residents up to northeast China where they would get incredible opportunities for education but also for ministry and to learn how to minister to, to kids that don't, don't have a family. So resident exchange. Um, in the U.S., we, obviously, we, we are willing and able to recruit for these programs because of our connection with them. Uh, we help with fundraising, obviously. That's a big part of what we do. Uh, we also do this kind of, uh, when it is helpful for these programs that are part of the network, we will do a joint certificate. So if in, in some of these places, accreditation is non-existent. So there's no governing board, there's no one that certifies and says you're an official whatever and so we have allowed and in his image ACGME accredited program to, to be willing to sign, sort of co-sign that, that certificate that says this curriculum has been reviewed by our program and it meets you know, these, these uh, standards and so that has been helpful in some places, some places it means nothing and we don't push that and some places it's very helpful and so we've done that uh, we do advertising, obviously, for them if they want to do that. We have some web uh, properties that are available if they want to use that. Uh, joint lectures, distance learning, kind of what you can see there. Uh, we, we do, because this network is a faith-based network, and these are people that work 
very closely together, we meet every month. So we have a monthly uh, virtual meeting or conference call type meeting um, with the directors of the programs. Um, that allows them, again, not to realize they're not alone. They're not out there on Mars without anybody that understands what they're going through. And uh, so we have monthly conference calls and meetings. Uh, often in those meetings, we, we, um, we will do a short uh, teaching, sort of an, an educational thing, perhaps on the basic building blocks of a training program or, uh, I mean, even medical stuff has been done, but it's very brief. The point of that meeting is really to connect, to network, to share prayer requests when appropriate, um, to support each other, to really be a blessing to each other. And so we've seen that be very powerful. Uh, we offer conferences and consultations, educational um, conferences, again, to come in and support the work of what's, doing, of what's going on. And again, those don't always come from the, the home base. Those come from other programs. Again, this, this concept that there are resources out there that are available in the field, very close nearby, that are uh, available. Um, we, at In His Image, have a 36 residency resident program in Tulsa, and our residents are often looking for places to go and do rotations. Guess what? They get to go to one of these programs. We try really hard to encourage them to go and sow their lives and, and their rotational experience in one of these sites. And often the Lord, you know, knits their hearts together with that place, and they go back multiple times. Many times they end up going long term. And so we encourage that. And, of course, the branding piece, we have some logoing and other things that we can do for them if that makes sense and if that's helpful for where they are. So what is it? what do we do? We have a, an email discussion group. These are very simple things. This is not rocket science. Nobody, this is not new information for any of us. Bulletin boards that are available. You know, how did you do recruiting? How did you do, what, does anybody have an interview form? How do you, you know, how do you interview someone in English as a second language? How do you How did you guys do this? And so we share that very openly. Um, The website, again, kind of monthly virtual meetings for education and sharing, conferences, faculty development. So often, we uh, once every other year, we do a a faculty development workshop for those who are teaching in these programs. And it'll be something like how to be a better preceptor, um, how to institute a spiritual curriculum into your program, just very... Uh, practical, very meaningful things uh, for these programs. And so we do some faculty development. Uh, Again, resident exchange, faculty exchange. Um, Some really neat stuff that's happened over the past years, just kind of some stories. So when I was in Macau, uh, the Sichuan earthquake hit. This was 2000, I don't even know, big, big, big earthquake out in West China. Um, And... We, as part of kind of our calling, we do disaster relief, and his image is very involved in disaster relief. And so I felt the calling to go and help and wanting to go and be part of that. And so actually we ended up with about four members of the team that joined and went to Sichuan together from the four different sites in China. So we, we met on site. We saw each other. There, you know, another, One of the other directors was there. And we formed a team, and we actually did disaster relief and ministry together. Again, there's a, there is a strength. I couldn't take four individuals from my program and from my clinic in Macau, but, but together we, we accomplished something really amazing. That was a neat story. Here just recently I was in Xinjiang at North, in, the, in our program in, in northeast China, and we were sitting at a board meeting, 
and there, uh, there in the room, we, we had a conference call going with, with one of the residents from Macau, who is also a member of the board of our Northeast program now. And, and so he was there. I was there. I think, Chris, you were there. So we had a Tulsa representative who was there. And then residents from the light program were in Aswan, Egypt, doing a back-to-Jerusalem-style short-term uh, educational mission trip in Aswan, Egypt. And so we had their residents on from the other side of the world, and we were all sort of meeting and encouraging, praying together. And, and that was sort of really, really amazing to watch, just, just how the Lord had connected and created this, this neat thing. So um, collaboration, connection, there's incredible strength in, in being the body in that way. So these are just kind of some of the software, some of the things we've used. We've used a variety of things over the years. WebEx, there's always security issues. There's always bandwidth issues. It's funny to me that this Zoom meeting, which is kind of the new one that we're trying, Zoom meeting has like 15 people doing simultaneous video all at the same time. Has, has anybody ever tried to do video in, <laughs> from somewhere to another place in any of these areas? There's no way you're going to have that, that screen. Uh, you're going to be lucky if you get audio that comes through in some of these places. So... Um, we often have, uh, have issues that we have to deal with um, with some of these meetings, but that's just kind of the way it is. We also have one of our directors who famously calls in from every possible place. He's called from the back of a truck on the way out to the countryside. He's called from the back of a motorcycle, you know, with his phone going. And we say, turn off your video. We can't, you know, we can't see you or we can't hear you. He often forgets his video is on, and that's embarrassing because he's in his pajamas and, you know, so uh, these they can be there can be some kinks to work out in some of this communication, but that's kind of what we do, and it's uh, it's really a privilege, it's really an honor to to, to be part of it. So, again, um, I, I hope I hope that I've tried to show you um, some of the impact, some of the importance of this of this concept of networking, <coughs> of connecting educational processes, educational projects and how that can really impact the work of each individual site. And I, I hope I've showed you that that's, that's a different thing. It's, it's not the same as this connection back to home base or even this connection to sort of regional centers. It's really a more organic, more horizontal kind of a relationship. And then we've kind of, kind of talked about some of the things that we do, some of the actual components of how we do that practically, collaboration, exchange, et cetera. And then I've just kind of shared a little bit about our specific uh, instance of that, the Hope Family Medicine Network. Um, I hope that's been helpful. Um, There are very smart people in the room. I see them. And so I would love to hear from you if you have comments or or personal experiences of your own that could feed into this. I would love to hear that. And obviously if we have any questions, there's my uh, email, my cell phone number. We're happy to share anything at all that we can to help in any in any way. So any any comments or anything to add? Yes, ma'am. Yes. So the question is for the audio. I think I'm supposed to do this. The question is, is if all of the programs that we're working with were started by us or were they started by maybe an in-country person or government or whatever? And the answer is yes. So, so most, I would say 90-plus percent of those are going to be 
have, have been started by our folks. And often they, they would have started very small, kind of as a clinic, often as a, you know, just a, a medical place to see patients, and then it kind of grows. One of the things about, and, and this is, again, just our kind of our DNA and in his image is that immediately when you become a resident, you become a teacher. Immediately when you become a physician, you become a teacher. I mean, you're a teacher already, whether it's with your patients or whether it's with others. And so, and so that's part of our DNA. So a lot of the times when these guys go out from us, they begin to see patients, almost immediately they say, there's no way I can keep up with this need. I'm working all day long. I can't do this. And they begin to think about how they can train and how they can equip somebody around them. So that was a long answer. So, uh, yes, the answer is most of them are. I think probably Hainan would be the only one that's kind of more of a government-established program. Um, that came out of a trained person from our program. Yeah, and even that came out of a, out of a trained program. Wuhan is a little bit. Wuhan. So in, in a lot of these places, there's a, there's, there are different ways that our guys are partnering, um, both with government and non-government. Um, but, but in general, we, we, did, we did start, start the, the initial thing. It's a good question. Way back. Yeah. Well, we have this completely figured out. I mean, it's, there's nothing to it. <laughs> no, it's uh, actually what, what I think what we try to do is we try to see the strength in uh, different experiences in different places. And so, for example, um, Shenyang may may be very very active in HIV work. So they they've got a fairly active or passion for HIV work, whereas, you know, Macau or Wuhan doesn't have that. And so we'll, we'll learn, we'll sort of have this shared tacit knowledge that's, that's brought down or our residents are sent there or we go and, and, and learn. Um, Macau is a big tuberculosis place, and so that was an area medically where we could sort of help, you know, when, when a new site was dealing with, hey, directly observed therapy is new for us, how did you guys implement it in the residency? So we had sort of done that, and so we could kind of share that knowledge. Um, in terms of getting into the clinical day-to-day work, though, that's pretty. We pretty much leave that up to the site to decide how what the standard of care is and what the best is there. Yeah. Uh, just to add to that, the models are different from country to country too. In some countries, they work in the hospital, out of hospital surgery, and some are just in the clinic and do very little procedures. Most of that's to a large extent determined by the medical system within which they're operating and what they will allow the primary care physician to do. Yeah, kind of, and you have to go with it. Yeah, I'm just kind of wondering if you're going to take up the game like, and, you know, because you know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a doctor, I'm a paramedic. And so it's kind of like, in the States, I have one set of protocols, and then when I travel abroad, my protocols just, you know, gotcha. blow out of the water, you know. Gotcha. So, you know, I'm just kind of wondering how you guys have been able to, because I teach on the side, too, so it's kind of like, yeah. Yeah, we never step on anybody's toes. <laughs> it's very difficult. I, we'll pray for you because paramedic ministry is like is like the final frontier in these places. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Thank you for being willing to do that. Yes, sir. Do you have a question? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just 
was kind of wondering how uh, how much language is a barrier and how you guys kind of overcome that. I'm sure that could be like an you know topic. <laughs> Again, we have no problem at all with language. Right? <laughs> no, it's uh, the question is how how language impacts this. Um, it, pretty much every site that we're involved in. Um, Medical English is a huge, huge asset. So most of our teaching, medical teaching, is done in English. And most of the sites that we are working in, that is, that is a positive. So that's not even something that those who have language, like the residents will say, we want you to teach in English. We would prefer that you teach in English because that gives them an edge in the community when they go out, when they do other things. Um, there are some exceptions to that, but most of the places we are, the teaching is done in English, and the residents prefer that we do the teaching in English. With that said, though, we always encourage those who are on the ground long term to be in language for, for heart issues and other things. But the teaching part is generally done, is done in English. Let me just add to that. We insular Americans that know English, and that's about all we know, uh, are very fortunate because so many other countries have decided that Probably medical is the way to go is to go in English. I was actually at a conference in which the Minister of Health of Afghanistan was talking with a number of Afghan doctors, and they were trying to decide, shall we, when we start to fire up the educational system in Afghanistan, shall we do that in Dari, or shall we do it in Pashtun, or shall we do it in English? And it was almost 100% said they wanted to do it in English because that way, they had access to the majority of the medical literature that was out in the world and educational materials and so forth. So it was, it was coming from an English perspective. So they were saying, we probably need to learn English because that's where we're going to tap into the biggest amount of medical, informational, and educational kind of materials. So, you know, fortunately for us stupid Americans who can only learn one language, why well, that's kind of been the kind of an order of business, I guess. Yeah. Balance that, though, with the fact that you're not off the hook for language. You still, right. It's still better to, to have language, language for that. Yeah. 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 yeah, definitely. Uh, is your home to location uh, pretty unique? I would imagine it's kind of a completely different practice setting. Do you have expats there as well, or what, what does that one look like? Yes, we do, uh, to all of that. It is a very different site. It's a very challenging place. Um, the, the director of that program is actually here. So I think he's still here. He hasn't left yet. Oh, okay. So, um, so yeah. So there are expats functioning there right now. They've got uh, three family docs and a surgeon. The two, uh, the two family docs. Fem- there's a male family doc who was here, and then two family docs that do advanced OB. So they do operative OB, and then the surgeon who is a retired surgeon who does everything. I mean, crazy, crazy does everything. And, and they've got about 16, I want to say. Six per class, so About 18 residents now. And, and, I mean, if you were to meet uh, Dave and, and know his heart, he's, he's the perfect person for that place. I mean, it's very, everything is done very carefully, very cautiously, but also um, very, very intentionally and very evangelistically. I mean, he, he is very careful about the way he shares, but he's not... He's respected. He has a deep relationship with his trainees, and, and they have chats, and they talk about a lot of things. But, yeah, it's, it's a very different place and, and a very difficult place. But, um, but yeah. Over here, ladies first. Um, when you are particularly working with government entities, I'm assuming a lot of these places that you're going, family medicine is not 
Yeah, that's a good question. So the question is, how do we how do we quote sell family medicine as a worthwhile investment in these countries? And I, I think it's a it's both a one time kind of a have let's have a meeting today, and it's a longitudinal gigantic thing. Um, we we obviously are not going to be able to to impact them in the way that some of the gigantic think tanks that are coming out with huge papers and other things. But we have to be familiar with those things. We have to be able to share, you know, the new data from wherever that's showing outcomes for primary care in these countries is better than perhaps these other places. We have to be knowledgeable about that. Um, We have not – I don't think we've ever had a problem getting an audience with someone in a position of authority in these places, and that would be medical schools, health departments, public health departments. Um, They're almost always willing and, and open to talking about that. And so we just give a defense when we can and just kind of say this is the way we do it. And, again, we don't do it in a, in a pushing way or in a way that, you know, you need this for your country. Most of the time they're saying that. They're coming to us saying, someone above me is telling me I'm supposed to do this. Can you help us figure out how to do it? And that's, that's where we kind of step in and say, well, yes, we can do that. to have perfect timing. In our strategy meeting way 30 years ago, we decided the Soviet Union would break up, China would open up, and the World Health Organization would promote primary care, and then we just kind of follow in into coattails. But, uh, <laughs> but we've, we've been blessed that uh, even in countries where it's brand new, this is not true 100%, but most, maybe all the places we're in, uh, that they have uh, listened to what the World Health Organization has said, and there's been at least pockets of people within these countries that are beginning to advocate or consider whether primary care and family medicine uh, is right for them. And we uh, have simply connected with those folks, whether they're medical schools or ministries of health or whatever, uh, and then helped them and worked with them. And then our programs have sprung up here and there uh, as a result. Uh, So like Chris said, we do want to be informed. We need to be informed and know what's going on. And and we try to strengthen the advocates within the country. And then we work alongside them and do our own things as well. Uh, So, so far, we haven't tried to come in and sell, you need family medicine. That hasn't really been our job. We've helped come alongside to help them develop it and show them what it could be. Let me add to that the historical perspective, which is that uh, we won't tell you, but Dr. Jenkins has probably done more family medicine, uh, basically, conferences internationally than anybody on the planet. And one of the ways that we've done is that he's gone into different, different countries and we've done these family medicine conferences that basically talks about us doing things like treating anxiety, depression, but also doing shoulder dystocia deliveries, but also talking about pediatric disease and kind of congestive heart failure. And they begin to see that, gee, you guys are really doing a very broad spectrum. And the WHO and USAID are telling us we need to be developing a primary care doc. Would you consult with us on how to do a family medicine residency? So we kind of went from conferences to then when I saw the breadth of what we could talk about, I started asking them for consultations and how to develop training programs for that to now all the way to the training programs themselves. So it's kind of that's the historical kind of sequence of things that's happened. And yet I would say that one of my, my sort of concerns is they're still not taking good advantage of all the family medicine could do. For example, in China, they could do with family practice doctors that are well-trained, that would be district doctors who could do OB and all the various things that we can do. 
but China isn't kind of there yet. They kind of don't see the, the breadth of what a family physician could do at a district hospital level. That's my opinion, but I and Chris can kind of comment on that too. Yeah. But that's kind of, I think they're not seeing all the advantage they could have if they had well-trained and broadly trained family docs that could help meet the needs of these various places of real, real need for access to care. I think one of the things to point out, though, is kind of this longitudinal piece, because I'll just speak for China. You know, China, China has asked for help from every country in the world in terms of medical development. So they, they've heard. They know, they know most of the information better than we do when we go in. They, they often will, you know, ask us, what do you think of this new thing? And we'll be like, well, I hadn't really heard of that. But now that you say that. Um, and so, you know, Australia, New Zealand, I mean, everybody has been there. Harvard's been there. I mean, everybody has come. The difference and the thing that changes both the primary care structure as well as, we hope, the spiritual structure of what we're going into is that we continue to go back over and over and over and over and over. And then we have somebody in the country that we say, if you want to know about family medicine, this is the expert. He's right here. He's coming to this meeting. He'll be here at this conference. You know, and, and, and we connect them meaningfully in that way. And that's the way, I mean, we, ha- we have relationships with people that at this point in China, we would never be able to get again because we don't have the right CUE. You know, we, we don't have the research. We don't have all the papers and stuff. And now they won't, they, they wouldn't have a relationship with us if we didn't have that. But because of the fact that, you know, 20 years ago we started working on this guanxi, this relationship, we're still invited to the table and they still call us if they need to know how's, how, what is family medicine, how does it work. And so the longitudinal faithfulness is really is really critical. So, other question? There's a paper that says... Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have my glasses on. Yes, sir? Are your residents national? Yes. Okay. Have you considered having, like, Americans come if they feel like maybe long-term they would be called to an area? Yeah, uh, the question is, are all of our trainees nationals? And yes, the answer is they are all 100% nationals. We do have American residents that will go as part of their training to be there for maybe a rotation or whatever. Um, the problem with them going to do a residency there is they're, usually they're not accredited back here, um, and so that would be tough. But we do have, you know, ro- the rotations that they want to do, or they're given credit for that when they're there on site, etc. So, yes, sir. You can guess what I'm going to ask. <laughs> I'm just curious about uh, whether you have vertically aligned systems that Yeah, so the question is if we have vertically aligned systems that include public health, community health. I would say yes when when the site, when the area is involved in that area. In other words, we don't come in, you know, as a kind of network and say, you need to have this connection, you need to have this in place. If we're asked for that information or we're asked for that input, we'll, we'll give it. And some sites are more connected than others. So in some places it's appropriate and it's kind of started that way. And in, the, in those cases we'll encourage and we'll be part of that. In other places not so much. It's, there's been a difference. You know, so it requires a lot of flexibility, I guess, across what we're doing. We do encourage it. Yeah. Afghanistan and I would say Egypt both are doing community health as well as uh, primary care and, and secondary care, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the model is there. 
and we're aware of the value of connecting like that. It's just like Chris said, a location and the local team, whether they can handle it or put in the time to develop it, that uh, are real factors. Let me mention something about that too, which is I really believe that the better mousetrap is going to be when we can get some people who have some kind of a relationship with Che. I don't know who that would be. I'm just kidding, Jerry. I know <laughs> you are the Che man now, but where we could actually get Che mid-level practitioner training and family practice doctor training who would be able to be district hospital doctors. Put that together in an integrated training and, and operational sense. I believe it's the better mousetrap that would literally be able to change communities because you could have a full gamut of integrated primary care. And it really takes putting, I believe, CHE, mid-level training people, and family doctor trained people all together so that they're functioning interconnected and also that they're using each other's strengths to kind of put the, put the system together. It becomes an integrated primary care system that then integrates with a secondary level system in any country. Anybody wants to do that? I think that's your, your ticket to fame and fortune. <laughs> I believe the United Nations would come looking for you if you put that together, an integrated primary care model, and they would say, come teach us how to do this together. But we've got to get some people that understand CHE, understand mid-level practitioner training, and also family doctor training, and put those three together. That's good. All personal, that's my hey, soapbox. We need, we need talk. Maybe time for two more questions. Networking happening right now. You see how that works? Okay, so two more questions. You mentioned fundraising as a benefit of this network. What is the typical source of funds for training sites? Yeah, it's good. We have this one figured out too. No, I'm just teasing. Most most of our sites. We we do not we do not fund these sites externally. You know we, we do not provide salaries, benefits, expenses, etc. for these sites. So these are these are functioning autonomous entities that have their own business plan, their own budget, their own spreadsheets that they're working through. Having said that, we will often feed into that either with opinion, expertise, and then even funds if there are some special gifts or things that we can solicit for them. We'll often do that. If we have a grant or donations or whatever, they will often be, we'll, we'll direct them then to that place if we see that, that, that there's a need there. But we've, we've been very careful not to step in and try to, you know, and try to be a funding source. We don't have the ability to do that, first of all. But also, we feel like being self-sufficient and, and self-producing is really the best plan for them. And so... But the expats raise their own support. Yeah, so the expats in these sites are all are all M's. They're all on their own support. Yeah, and that's that's how a lot of these are funded. It's just different. Some through patient revenue. Some through you know, Macau is is completely patient revenue supported now. There are a couple of churches and others that support. But there's a pretty big window between what, especially your expat faculty, if they're raising support and not taking a salary, the residents prefer, I mean, the residents then receive funding from their patient care as well as the expats that are giving patient care. So that's kind of the way that, that that's worked out. Intriguingly, more recently, and I've been advocating for this for about 10 years, but more recently, we've had
had some people that are mission-minded organizations that do have some funding that are now starting to fund mm-hmm. resident salaries for the local national residents to be able to be funded. So that's been one of our missing yeah. pieces for a while. And we now have about three or four different sources in which we're raising resident salaries for the local national docs to be able to be trained and, and fund them while they're in the program. And, and I see that. I've been basically looking for that for 10 years, but we've really been seeing it happen in what the last three, four yeah. years that we've had. Sort of the sponsor a resident sponsor kind of an idea. Residents. And that's really helped a lot because if the faculty are raising their own support and then we get some sponsors to sponsor the resident salaries, then what you're missing is things like you know, the money for computers and or whatever, uh, educational yeah. materials and things like that. And we've occasionally found people who are really very excited. We, For example, our S1 program, there's a great need for an, a, an apartment near the hospital so the residents could be there and, and be right next to the hospital for call. Well, we ended up finding a couple of donors that actually helped us buy an apartment right next to the hospital. So just all kinds of piecemeal ways of doing that. You just have to work however you can. Yeah, that's good. Okay, I'm going to have to shut it down. I see our end is here. I will be here. I'll stay up front for a little while. Thank you so much again for honoring me with your attention. Appreciate you.